0: So in just a moment, we're going to hear from Bethany as she opens the word for us today. But before that, uh, I just want to remind everyone that last week we began a new teaching series, which we've titled, The True and False Self Filled with All the Fullness of God. Now, no one questions the importance of knowing God, but in the modern era of self-discovery, the second that you mention knowing the self as essential for spiritual formation and maturity, uh, a few things happen in a room. Some people immediately panic. Other people get really excited because they think this is like the Myers-Briggs with a Jesus-y twist, and many people are lost somewhere in between. So I just want to quickly put some of you at ease, calm some of you down, and get all of us collectively on the same page. A.W. Tozer said this, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. C.S. Lewis followed that up with, there is one thing more important than what we think of God, and that's what God thinks of us. Then John Calvin said, nearly the whole of sacred doctrine consists in these two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. Basically, come on, guys, everybody's right. Just relax. All to say we cannot separate the two. We cannot separate knowing God as he truly is and knowing myself as I truly am. And the conflict that exists right at the heart of the biblical story is deception. I have become deceived about who God is and who I am. And that essential conflict and the... the. United nature of God's identity and my identity, you will find peppered all throughout the scriptures. It's in Genesis 3, Jeremiah 17, Psalm 1, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, Romans 8, just to name a few. So this teaching series is about knowing God and knowing myself without deception. And it's about recognizing and distinguishing between the true and false self that exists within each one of us. Now, we saw that last week in the picture of the life of Peter, and today we begin to venture into the weeds together. And over the next nine weeks, you're going to experience this teaching series in three parts, which I would simply name love, fear, and then becoming love. We're first going to talk about uh, who God really is, who we really are, and the love that penetrates our hearts as we discover that. Then we're going to talk about fear, the counterpoint of love that exists and combats uh, all of that very good doctrine that we want to place our trust within. And then finally, we'll talk about becoming love. When God's uh, love becomes not just intellectual knowledge, but experiential relational knowledge, how does that reform who we are in the world? But every journey starts with knowing God, with knowing God as he really is. And so that's where we will begin today. Uh, So now if you would just stand with me, I'm going to read our teaching text for today. Forgot the Bible. It comes from Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. So that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone at one time or another has had an experience that makes them look at life with a new set of eyes, through a new lens. And for me, a few years back, it was when my mom and I took a trip to Ireland. Now I've always wanted to go to Ireland, I've always felt connected to that part of the world, who knows why? (laughs) Uh, But this place was a place I was determined to see before I died, and thankfully that hasn't happened yet. So I did it. Uh, Before we left for our trip, I did a ton of research, and I'm not even that kind of person. I just actually wanted to go to this place. I got a ton of information. I looked at the various castles. We researched the history of Ireland. We mapped out where we would go, and I even tried my hand at an accent from time to time. It didn't go as well as you would think. And I remember being just a few weeks away from the trip and I was sitting for hours looking at photos, specifically of the Cliffs of Moher, a place that had captured me early on, trying to read Irish poetry and only listening to Ed Sheeran, just to ready myself for the experience. And truth be told, I could only imagine Ireland at the time. So when we finally arrived in Ireland, my mom and I quickly made our way to the Cliffs of Moher And I wish that I could translate what happened to me in that place, what happened to my mom in that place as we tried to, what felt like for the first time, make our eyes see it all, to make our bodies feel it all. I wish I could tell you what happened to us that made us feel so undone and wild that we walked very dangerous, cliffy, craggy pathways and even trespassed quite a bit uh, in that area. I wish I could tell you how it felt to feel so small and yet so enveloped at the same time. I wish I could articulate how actually experiencing something that beautiful changed the disposition and the fabric of my heart, and how I experienced a new knowledge of the God who created such a place. You see, experiences change us. Change us. Different from information, an experience has the power to shift the workings of your heart and mind, to shift and shape your destiny and the trajectory of your future experiences. And maybe for you, it was the experience of finally seeing the face of the child who mysteriously grew in your womb for nine months, or the holy experience of finally covenanting the one that you love for as long as you both shall live. Maybe it was the experience of a cancer diagnosis that changed the way you not only viewed your life, but the lives of those around you, or the experience of losing someone you thought you couldn't live without. Whatever it is, no book, no research, no memoir or story can take the place of the experiences that have changed you. Experience is woven into the human condition. Experience is how we know and are known at a soul level. Experience is the great translator of our social and relational world, and it is also the pathway to our spiritual transformation. Now like Tyler said, if you didn't know, last week we kicked off this series, True and False Self, Filled with the Fullness of God, and at the center of this series is what Tyler spoke to last week. A journey we all take in the Christian faith, one that moves us, to put it simply, from head knowledge to heart knowledge, to a spiritual knowledge that transcends information and leads to a life of transformation. Knowledge, you'll remember as we read it in the scriptures, is a personal, relational, and maybe even better put, experiential word. It is an action word that by its very nature catalyzes knowing. And today we're going to explore this concept a bit further and we're going to unpack what it means to know God. A very simple task before me (laughs) this morning. Now, we're going to look back at our text together, but before we do, I just want to give you a little bit of context for what we're looking at and where we're picking up. Is that okay? I'm going to need you to put your thinking caps on this morning, just for a minute. Can you do that? Like some of you are like, that is so sweet. Uh, (laughs) But I don't really need to. But anyway, do that. That's great. Now, some of you know this, but Colossians is a book written by Paul to the church of a place called Colossae, which was a group, uh, a church that had a group of people who were followers of Jesus, just like us. And it was written, scholars believe, somewhere between 60 and 62 AD. That's important because Paul wasn't writing this hundreds of years after the resurrection, but he was writing to people who would have actually known about or maybe even seen Jesus raised from the dead, which makes his message to them that much more significant. Now, overall, the church was doing really well, but there was a problem in Colossae. Some people believed, some false teachers, more specifically, some people called the Gnostics, were people who actually believed that God was impersonable or unknowable in the biblical sense, unless you had like some special revelation from God. Those people had kinda made their way into the mix of the Jesus people, and they were starting to threaten or distort the message of Jesus, the true message that was being told. So, Paul is writing to them and he's warning them against the temptation to believe a diluted version of the gospel. But more than that, he writes to plead with them to take hold of what is rightfully theirs, which is a fuller knowledge or experience of God. So, we're going to look at our text, we're going to move through this together, and then we're going to get to the hardest stuff. That's what I always do, right? Some of you're like you do this every time. No need to tell us. All right, so let's do that. So look at your Bibles, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to pick up at verse 15. Paul writes this, "The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in all things, and in him all things hold together." And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Now, notice that the Son or Jesus is the main subject of this first part of our text. And we're told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So I'm going to break this down for us. This means that Jesus. Everything we see in his life throughout the Gospels, every disposition he carries, miracle, expression of humor, sadness and authority, every act of forgiveness, every act of mercy, every deliverance and freedom he offers is a reflection to us of what God is like. But not only that, what we see in Jesus, you know, this idea of what God is like, we also read in the second part of our verse that Jesus isn't just a reflection of God, but he is god and that's just the first line he goes on and he does so and he paints this even grander picture of jesus now this is important because what paul is doing here is elaborating not just because he's full of fire and feeling very spicy which i imagine he is but he's doing so so that the hearers get that jesus is more than just a spiritual guy or a rabbi who walked the earth and did miraculous things He is saying to real people in a real place and reminding them in a deeper way that Jesus was much more than a good time or something to partake of or a radical person to follow. He was reminding them that he was also the Messiah sent from God, that he was so much more than information or knowledge or stories that they had heard about him. He was a person, and that's important, but he was also God. So we go on to read Paul's big statements about Jesus's Godness, that in Jesus all things were created, things we can see and things we can't see. He was, we're told, before all things, like John chapter 1, and he is the head of the church. Paul says that so that in everything he might have supremacy, which is another way of saying so that he might have authority. Now, I know we don't use language like this very often, and I definitely know that we as a church community don't usually unpack texts like this very often. Thank you, Tyler. But I want you to stay with me because this is really important for us. The big idea here, the thing we're meant to get, and I certainly don't have time to do this justice with a great exegesis, but the point is that because God became a person, we can now know him and be known by him. Because God became a person, we can now know him and be known by him. Because God, the one who was before everything and who holds everything together put on flesh, we can, as the book of Hebrews says, trust that we have a God who now knows what it means to be human and while at the same time still be God. It also means that through Jesus we can know God in a way we didn't know him before he became human and spoke our language and put on our clothes. Paul is anxious here to remind the church that their knowledge or knowing of God and who God really is was changed because of the person of Jesus. Jesus is now the filter through which they can run all their ideas about who God is. Now we're going to have to keep going because I've got to get us to some other places. Is that okay? You doing all right? One guy back there is really smiling at me in a funny cheeky way. Good to see you, bud. Um, all right, here we go. Verse 19. No, nope, yes, verse 19. For God was pleased to have the fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself, to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. For God was pleased to have the fullness dwell in him. It's here in verse 19 that Paul is making a huge statement, one to the Gnostics of the day, but also to the church. Paul is revealing that, yes, we know God through the person of Jesus, but also that through Jesus, we can also know the fullness of God because of the death, his death on a cross. Now, you may be like, what? You just said the same thing over and over again, and what I'm saying may sound a lot like semantics, but I promise it's more than that. When Paul speaks to the fullness here, he is pointing us back to the idea that once we were separated from God in Jesus because of our sin, but because of what Jesus did, we now know the power of God, the fullness of his dwelling, the fullness of relationship, the fullness of forgiveness and of his presence. Fullness here not only points us back to what Jesus did for us to make a way to God, but it also points us forward to the power of a resurrection reality. The fullness of life as it was meant to be, fully reconciled to God through Jesus' sacrifice. Knowing God then is to know him as a person and to know his power in a personal and experiential way. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight. Without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and you do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul turns a bit of a corner here and he draws the readers' minds back to the time before they knew God, before they actually experienced him. And he reminds them that because of Jesus, not only did they have, did not have to experience death, but that through his death, something shifted in their reality. Verse 22 speaks to how through Jesus we are made holy and blameless, free from accusation like Jesus. And it's important to note that holy and blameless are positional words that reflect to us that knowing God also means we share in his benefits. It means that we now know a different position before God. Where once we were alienated because of our sin, we are now brought into God's presence to know His righteousness as our own and to walk in the freedom and the authority of that position. To know God is to be positioned like Him, to experience what it means to rule and reign with Him, to enter into spaces and to carry with us light that actually changes the darkness an authority that makes atmosphere shift, to freely enter into God's presence like children, free to ask and believe and rest and trust in Him without fear, to know the love of God in a way that is uninhibited uninhibited and restricted. Knowing God means experiencing the fullness of His person, His power, and the position He has bought for us. And Paul's invitation to the church is our invitation. And his concerns about a diluted gospel, one that exists existentially, intellectually, or in a way that is removed from an actual experience, or the kind of knowing we've been invited into and created for, that isn't that far from our reality. Psychologist and author David Benner once said, looking back, I find it remarkable how easily I accepted ideas about God as substitutes for direct experience of Him. It took a long time to begin to know God through my heart and not simply my head. What Benner is reflecting on here is a very real tension in the human and spiritual experience. Like most things, it's easier, at least at first, to accept a subjective reality over an experiential one. Subjective meaning how we think something is versus how we actually know it is. It is. The truth is, culturally we are and have been in many ways conditioned or, dare I say, deluded to live and accept life this way. We are regularly told and indoctrinated to define our own reality based on what we feel or know or think we know, to define good and evil. We're told that we are the authors and the creator of every story. And beyond it all, we are actively being sold the lie that through our subjective reality we can actually create meaning. We see this through means like social media and fake news and this is just our way of maintaining control, but it is also our way of trying to make meaning out of what we think or hope matters. If we're honest, I think most of us would say that the outcome of that looks like a constant cycle of mitigating something, substantiating something, defending something, and ultimately diminishing our actual experience of life. The problem with all of this is that we are beings created for devotion, not detachment. And when we are living detached from the experience of who God is, there will be undoubtedly a great discrepancy of our understanding and experience of who we believe God to be versus who he actually is. When we live detached from an experiential knowledge of God, there are only two types of knowing available to us. The first is a borrowed knowledge. This is an experience of God that we borrow or try to vicariously experience through others. Now, this doesn't just look like going to church to get a good feeling when the Christian slow jams come on and, uh, or you see people getting kind of an experience with God or their needs being met in a tangible way. This often looks more like taking another's experience of God at face value, while never actually seeking out your own experience. Simply put, it's borrowing someone else's experience of God and making it your own. And while borrowed knowledge is a part of development, even spiritual development, think kids and young teens who borrow their parents' faith until it becomes their own, there will inevitably come a time when that borrowed knowledge won't be enough. We see this playing out all the time in our world, particularly in the Christian world, particularly in the lives of those who are deconstructing. More often than not, what's happening in that process is that the knowledge someone borrowed is no longer working, whether that be from their home church or their parents or whatever it is. And those individuals are deconstructing, but not necessarily their own knowing of God, but rather someone else's faith that wasn't theirs to begin with. A borrowed knowledge is a knowledge that has an expiration date. And if it's not catalyzed through a personal experience with God, It will eventually dissolve into our second type of knowing, which is a subjective knowledge. This is a truth claim that truth claims can't exist. It's a way of saying, what you believe is true for you is true for you, and what I believe is true for me is true for me. Knowing God, then, is subjective or it's relative. It's conditional depending on what you think or feel or believe at the time. And it's a very elusive beast, this subjective knowledge, because it usually hides itself in indirect and subversive ways. Subjective knowledge lives in the hidden assumptions behind statements. So for example, someone might say, God wants you to be happy, but the assumption is however you define happy. It's a kind of knowledge rooted in your personal ideas and preferences. And God, as defined from this perspective, will tend to agree with what we agree with, like and hate the things and people we like and hate and he will sound a lot like us subjective knowledge is a knowledge of god made in our image which means that it only exists as far as we can imagine or believe it on the discipleship discipleship journey it's easy to depend on these two ways of knowing god or to exist somewhere on the spectrum of each or to partake of both in different seasons It's easy to depend on our social, cultural, or cognitive agreements to substantiate the fabric of our relationship with God, but both will, at the end of the day, leave us wanting. Because both set God up to be a concept or a theory to shape rather than a person to experience. And just like with any other person, a knowledge of God, as Tyler mentioned last week, has to be inhabited and experienced and lived. There is no substitute, there are no cliff notes, no shortcut to experiencing God, just an invitation to your very being, to yada, God, in a way that is intimate and personal and human. I believe knowing God starts with us moving from our perception of God to the person of Jesus. Moving from our preferences for God to an experiential power he has on offer and moving from a place of personal pride and dependence to embracing our position before him. And then doing this over and over and over again. Now, if we are to actually experience the person of Jesus, to know him as Paul describes him in our text, and as we see him in the scriptures, then we'll first have to confront and surrender our perception of who we assume him to be. We all carry a perception about God, How do I know? Because we carry perceptions of each other. He is an easier target, by the way. Each of you right now has a perception of me in ways that are accurate and ways that are not. (laughs) Perception is how we start the journey of knowing. But if we stop there, we will miss not only the truth of who someone is, but we'll miss the depth and dimension of the one we're seeking to know. Our perception of God is often based on many things. We know this from the people who have told us about him or the weird youth camps we attended or the leaders who were disappointing or completely mesmerizing or parents who did their best. And while some of those things were helpful or hurtful in informing the road where we were on to learn about God, none of them were an actual encounter with him. Knowing the person of Jesus demands we give him the space and time to actually know him personally and for ourselves. It means that we have to talk to him, to listen to him, to look for him like we look for people on a Sunday morning to sit with him, to give him our attention, to give him our time, and to give him our space. And we have to learn about him like you look up people on Instagram and Facebook all the time. You have to hear stories about him like you hear stories about the grandparents who passed and went before you. We have to read his words, we have to hear how he spoke, to see the love he demonstrated and the miracles he did. To know him is to learn his heart and what he hopes for and what the love he gives looks like. To know him is to hear him say your name and to know what it sounds like when he speaks it in our hearts and in our minds. Knowing him means we memorize his words like the words of a love letter written by someone we love. We have to keep them so deep inside so that when we're tempted to believe he is someone he is not, we remember who he really is. Knowing the person of Jesus means, hear me, this is brilliant. Knowing the person of Jesus means really knowing him. Really knowing him. And maybe I sound hyper redundant. You're like, this is Sunday school one-on-one. Or maybe I sound like a bananas fool, which is quite possible. And bananas, no pun intended. But the truth is, I think that many of us are in far more danger of not knowing him, of thinking that we know him because we borrowed Maverick City's faith or Tyler's faith more than we partake in the invitation to know him ourselves. Knowing Jesus, it does mean things like reading the Bible and doing so not just to check the box, but to know the God who is today calling your name. Reading the Bible transcends a tricky parable to navigate or cool stories of eyes becoming clear. It is a beckoning to the soul of anyone who would hear. It is God's voice and heart on display in written words. Knowing Jesus also means that we have to pray, which is really another way of saying we have to talk to God. I can't think about how many times I have avoided prayer because I'm like, it's so cumbersome. When really, I'm doing it all day, every day, with everyone. I mean, I'm really, I'm talking to everyone. If you don't know me, I'm doing that. Prayer is a space for us to tell him how we feel, to laugh with him, to get insight into the world, to see it in a totally different way, to ask him for what we need and to thank him for what we have. So things like prayer and reading the Bible are just on ramps to relationship, like taking a car ride or grabbing coffee with someone. Knowing the person of Jesus means making space and choosing him. Laying down your perceptions and letting him show you and reveal to you who he really is. Give him space to have the final word. Give him space to tell you who he really is. What are we afraid of? Experiencing the person of Jesus shapes our reality in a way that nothing else on earth can. People often say to me, how do you hear the voice of God? You know how I predominantly hear the voice of God? Through written words. He is speaking. If we'll just make time and space for him. So knowing Jesus means knowing him as a person, but it also means knowing his power. Now when you hear power, I don't want you to think Darth Vader. Power in terms of knowing God is about a life that is marked by freedom and a life lived in the spirit. Remember that word fullness. When you encounter God's power, you get to encounter the fullness of love, not some cheap version, but the fullness of love, the fullness of peace, and of a hope that is boundless. You get to experience dead things actually coming back to life. You get to know the power of resurrection that makes all the sad things in the world untrue. Knowing God means knowing this kind of power in your life. It's not just for the select few. It's not just for those who've done it right or done it well. It is for all of us. Knowing God means knowing this kind of power. It gives you the power to face sin and be unafraid because he paid for it all. Knowing this kind of power means you can look disease and trauma and even death in the face and know that God's power is greater still. When we know God, When through our relationship to him, we know his power, we not only have access to, but we get to carry the fullness of the power of God inside of us. And we do all of this because in him, somehow, we've been given a position, not only before God, but in this world. Knowing God means that we know our place before him. It means that we consider what we read today, that once we were alienated and separated from God, but if we have said yes to Jesus, that's no longer true. Your position is officially in. And while, again, that may sound remedial in nature, the truth is many of us regularly act or feel like we're not in. We feel like we can't access God. If you've said yes to Jesus, the book of Hebrews tells us that we can boldly approach God's throne. And notice it doesn't say once you clean yourself up or you memorize a few things. We're told that we're to boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence and to do so, he says, boldly. Confidence here means freely and unreserved. It means when you're sloppy, you've got salsa down your shirt, whatever's happening, this is how we boldly enter his space. Knowing God means we know that we have a place with him. If he is our father, then our position is child. What do you do with your child when he comes running in, naked, covered in food? Don't you just want to nibble on that little human? That's how your father maybe sees you. (laughs) If God is our savior, then we enter in as the rescued one. If he is our teacher, then we enter in as students, curious and willing to make mistakes and willing to be taught. If he is our confidant, then we are his friend. And if he is our husband, we are his lover, the one he shares his whole self with. Knowing God is also about knowing our position before him And letting that change the way we relate to Him. The way we approach Him in worship and in prayer and in life. Our position before God frees us up to take a different position with God and with those around us. And crazy enough, as we do that, as we keep barging into the throne room, one more thing, which is something I do quite often. I want more and more And more, becomes easier to enter in, in, in. And then basically I'm just snuggling him 24-7 on his lap. Like anyway, so then I was thinking, we're just talking like that because that's what it means to know him. Knowing God is about knowing him, God, as a person and being known as his people. It's about knowing him and experiencing his power day in and day out the fullness of peace, the fullness of love, the fullness of hope. And it's also about knowing our position before him and allowing that to be the pathway into a deeper knowing of him. My question to you is, do you know him this way? Do you know his person? Do you know his power? And do you know your position before him? Have you experienced God this way? Author Brennan Manning in his book, The Furious Longing of God, once said, the wild, unrestricted love of God is not simply an inspiring idea. When it imposes itself on mind and heart with the stark reality of ontological truth, it determines why and at what time you get up in the morning, how you pass through your evenings, how you spend your weekends, what you read, and who you hang with. It affects what breaks your heart, what amazes you, and what makes your heart happy. Knowing God means experiencing the unrestricted love of God and being changed by it. Knowing God means everything changes. I grew up in a very Christian home. I mean very. On Sunday mornings, I always think about how I went to three different Sunday schools and two different big churches. Uh, And I think about, wow, girl, you got this. You know, we only have three. But for me, that was my childhood experience. And I was wearing pantyhose the whole time. So in Florida. I'd like some acknowledgement of the suffering we participated in there. I went to Christian schools most of my life. I've been in a million Bible classes, that may be an exaggeration, but it feels like that. A hundred theology classes. I went to seminary and got my master's degree in all things God. Um, I've been a pastor here at Bridgetown almost 10 years in August. I have served vocationally in the church five years prior to that. I've had thousands of hours of pastoral meetings, and I've got those under my belt. And I've listened, I did the math last night, to over 2,000 Sunday sermons in my lifetime. You don't do the math on that. And I want you to hear me say that I, this is simple, but I don't know God because of those things. I know about Him, and I've been invited to know Him, but none of those things are Him. I know Him because as an 11-year-old, I learned to tell Him how scared I was that my family was falling apart, and I learned how to wait in the night to hear Him say I was okay. I know him because he held me the night my heart broke over a man that I loved who was never going to choose me. And I know him because I heard him say that I was worth choosing. I know him because I have sat with him almost every morning since I was 11 years old, and I've told him my best jokes, my greatest fears, and my deepest desires. I know him Because I have sat with the words he spoke in his word, and I have heard them speak speak them over me too. I know him because he has come to find me over and over and over and over and over again. Even when I've tried to not know him. And he has found me anyway. Church, we know him only by experiencing him. And we are invited every second of every day to know him this way. To know God is to experience him. And experiencing him will change us and keep us changing.